welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 26th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo. From the front page of today's Gazette, consultant informs Reynolds overhaul proposal, state used federal aid to pay Virginia firm nearly $1 million by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Selling off some state-owned land should be fairly easy, but reducing the state government office footprint in Des Moines or standardizing community-based corrections programs under the state umbrella could prove more difficult. Those are among the assessments in a 68-page report by a Virginia-based consulting firm hired by Governor Kim Reynolds and paid nearly $1 million to analyze and make recommendations for the governor's proposal to realign and streamline state government. The consultant, Guidehouse, recommended reducing the number of state departments with directors who report directly to the governor from 37 to 16. The firm's report says that streamlining plus other recommended changes and moves could save Iowa state government nearly $215 million over four years. The Guidehouse report was the basis for Reynolds' sweeping legislative proposal to realign state government, a massive bill that is nearly 1,600 pages. The current structure of executive branch under the control of the governor presents a rich opportunity to realign and streamline the organization to better serve the people of Iowa and continue excellent stewardship of taxpayer dollars, the Guidehouse report says. A realigned state government will enable the governor continue to prioritize a government that is efficient and effective, responsive and accountable, citizen-focused, built on leading practices and data-driven decision-making, ensuring Iowa's economic prosperity. Guidehouse was paid $994,000 by the state, which selected the firm under a competitively bid master agreement between the state of New York and Guidehouse, according to the governor's office. To fund the project, the governor's office used federal pandemic relief funding from the American Rescue Plan Act, which Reynolds publicly opposed when it was approved by Congress and President Joe Biden in 2021. Guidehouse has not previously been contracted by Iowa state government, but the firm says on its website that it has served 45 state governments in customer and citizen engagement, cybersecurity, program management, grant management, sustainability, and workforce planning. On its website, the firm says it offers federal and state governments a unique combination of public sector analysis and practical experience, and its experts' insights help government officials simplify complex procurement procurement processes and produce efficient, optimal outcomes. Guidehouse has been on Bloomberg government's list of the top federal contractors in consecutive years, ranked 64th in the most recent Bloomberg report, with more than $1.2 billion in contracts for the year. Guidehouse in 2021 came under scrutiny for its role in operating New York's $2.4 billion rental assistance program, for which it was awarded a $115 million no-bid contract by former Governor Andrew Cuomo. New York's program was plagued by delays and glitches early on, then ran out of funds, sparking a lawsuit from groups that advocate for tenants. Guidehouse will not operate any government functions as part of its contract with Iowa. Its role in Reynolds' government reorganization plan is purely for consulting and making recommendations, the governor's office said. Reynolds announced her proposal during her condition of the state address January 10th, and legislation was introduced February 1st. Detractors of the proposal, including Democratic state lawmakers, have criticized the process, saying Guidehouse consulted only with top-level state officials, not with those who run programs at the community level or who lead state boards and commissions. During its process, Guidehouse worked with a variety of executive branch staff to gather and collect information for the report, including agency heads, senior staff, and other technical and programmatic experts within departments, a spokesman for the governor's office told the Gazette. While the report does not make it a formal recommendation for the initial state government reorganization, it suggests that in the future the state should consider the privatization of some state entities as a cost-saving measure. It lists as potential candidates for privatization Iowa PBS, the Iowa Communications Network, the State Historical Museum, and Volunteer Iowa Program. Twin bills carrying Reynolds' proposal, Senate Study Bill 1123 and House Study Bill 126, have been advancing through the legislative process on the support of Reynolds' fellow Republicans. In the Senate, the bill has cleared the committee phase of the legislative process and is eligible for consideration and debate by the full Iowa Senate. Also from the front page, Selling Iowa's Prison Farms, Raise Millions, Lose History, by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. During the Great Depression, when food was scarce across the country, men incarcerated at the Anamosa State Penitentiary grew the vegetables and fruit they ate behind bars. 
They raised hogs, cattle, and poultry, collected eggs, and even made milk, cheese, and ice cream. Prison farms in Iowa and across the country not only supplied food for incarcerated people, but they were the first prison vocational programs outside prison walls. The state is now considering selling more than 4,000 acres of farmland surrounding Iowa prisons and other residential facilities to raise an estimated $32.7 million. About one-third of the land is near the Anamosa prison and likely includes a farm on the National Register of Historic Places. The parcel, called Farm No. 1, Iowa Men's Reformatory, was added to the National Register in 1992 and has 10 buildings, including limestone barns, a slaughterhouse, dining hall, granary, and a root cellar from the early 1900s. They are gorgeous as a little cluster, a little community of the prison life, said Beth DeBoom, a Cedar Rapids historic preservation advocate, after seeing photos of the buildings. The time traveler in me was drawn to those photos and what was there once upon a time. I just don't know how that bodes for the future. If the buildings were torn down, it would be a terrible loss, she said. In a 68-page report, Virginia-based consulting firm Guidehouse recommends a host of ways Iowa could save money, from reducing duplication of computer software to demoting local community-based corrections boards. The consultant says the Iowa Department of Corrections and Health and Human Services own more than 4,700 acres of farmland near prisons and residential facilities, such as the Independence Mental Health Institute. Much of that land is rented out to other farmers, which brings in income of $1.7 million a year. Guidehouse suggests Iowa sell 4,073 acres to generate $32.7 million in one-time cash the state could use to fund other operations, including changes to community-based corrections. Inmates employed have declined over the years, and given the increased technical requirements for farm operations and advanced machinery used, the report states, for calendar year 2020, only 8.36 inmates were employed, a 28% decrease from the year prior. To be eligible for the program, an inmate must be low risk, and this also leads to high turnover, as this population is often eligible for parole. The consultant advises Iowa maintain buffer zones around the prisons and residential facilities of between 50 and 200 acres. The Anamosa State Penitentiary, with soaring walls made by offenders from limestone quarried at Stone City, is also on the National Register of Historic Places. The prison, Iowa's oldest still in operation, was the site of a March 2021 attack by two prisoners who killed Correctional Officer Robert McFarland and Nurse Lorena Schulte as part of a failed escape plan. The Corrections Department recently decided to move all maximum security offenders out of the Anamosa prison. The Gazette last week asked the Corrections Department several questions about the proposed land sale, including, would the state require the farmland be used for farming or could buyers develop it? Are the proposed buffers large enough for safety if there were housing developments or retail areas on the former farmland? Does this proposal leave enough room to build a new Anamosa prison in the same area? The agency did not answer those questions by Friday afternoon. It's not the first time Iowa has considered selling prison farms. A 2002 report by the Legislative Fiscal Bureau said selling all the land, or just the rented portions, could boost the state's general fund. But there were downsides, including limiting opportunities for offender employment and reducing land that is currently available for future prison expansion or replacement of existing facilities. Iowa farmland values were averaging more than $9,000 an acre, in November, up from about 7,200 in 2012, according to Progressive Farmer. If the state sells farm number one, the future owner would have no restrictions on what it could do with the buildings, despite the National Register designation. That means the buildings could be torn down. DeBoom thinks the farm buildings could be repurposed into shops or housing, since the area is close to a residential area in Anamosa. There are state and federal grants available to restore National Register buildings. Bruce Perry, president of Preservation Iowa, said he'd like every historic building to be preserved, but it doesn't always make sense. My suggestion would be that in some way this story is documented, he said, about the history of prisoners raising their food. If the prison farm buildings were to go away, but there is a series of plaques and kiosks, that would tell the story of what was like. From the Iowa Today, Zoom bombs interrupt legislative hearings by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Swastikas and pornographic videos have been among the unwelcome visitors to legislative hearings at the Iowa Capitol in recent weeks. Some users of the video conferencing application Zoom, which the Iowa Senate uses to allow for virtual viewing of and participation from across the state in hearings on proposed legislation, have on multiple occasions posted offensive or graphic images or videos while those hearings were taking place. 
the incidents have Senate Republicans, who by virtue of their majority established policy in their chamber, rethinking their use of Zoom in those legislative hearings. Senate staff already has taken steps in an attempt to decrease the likelihood of such future incidents over Zoom. They will continue to monitor user participation, a Senate Republican spokesman said. The use of Zoom for legislative hearings was first deployed during the 2021 season, which began during one of the peaks of the COVID-19 pandemic. Zoom videos gave interested Iowans an option to observe or even participate in the legislative process without traveling to Capitol Hill. Lawmakers have kept using the Zoom feature in the legislative session since. Iowans with an internet connection can watch and listen to all Senate subcommittee and committee hearings on Zoom, and during some subcommittee hearings can testify and propose legislation if they wish. The Senate has a television in each legislative hearing room, equipped with a microphone and speaker that allows Zoom users to monitor the hearing at the Capitol and allow those at the Capitol to interact with individuals over Zoom. The feature is now endangered after the spate of incidents that are known by the slang term Zoom bombing. Recently, a series of Senate subcommittee hearings on Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping proposal to reorganize state government was Zoom bombed multiple times. During the hearing, a pornographic video took over the screen on multiple occasions. Iowa Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig who was guiding the governor's state government realignment bill through the Senate and thus was in the room when the Zoom bombings occurred, has said at multiple hearings since that the incidents endanger the Senate's continued use of Zoom and thus Iowans' ability to participate. Caleb Hunter, spokesman for Senate Republicans, said staff has attempted to create safeguards that will halt further incidents. The Iowa Senate has implemented new protocols to address the incidences of improper behavior on Zoom during Senate subcommittee hearings, Hunter said. Permitting access to the lawmaking process through this feature has been well received and improved transparency. Incidents of this type must stop. Hunter said if more incidents occur, Senate Republicans will consider further constraints upon the use of Zoom, including possibly restricting users' ability to participate in hearings. The Iowa House, which is led by majority Republicans, uses a different video conferencing system, Cisco WebEx. In the House system, interested Iowans can only observe legislative proceedings. They cannot participate remotely. The House has experienced no reported issues like the Zoom bombing in the Senate. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading In the News, Senate passes trucking lawsuit caps. Iowa lawmakers are moving forward on a proposal to limit awards for pain and suffering in lawsuits involving trucks and other commercial vehicles. The Senate passed a bill that would cap non-economic damages in those lawsuits at $2 million, mirroring limits on medical malpractice lawsuits Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law earlier this month. The bill shields trucking companies from liabilities over an employer's employee's conduct in most cases of negligence. Republican supporters said the bill would provide stability for trucking companies and prevent so-called nuclear verdicts that award tens of millions of dollars. Democrats said there is little evidence of those high-dollar verdicts in Iowa, and Iowans deserve the right to have their case heard by a jury. Ban on gender-affirming care for minors. House Speaker Pat Grassley said a ban on gender-affirming care for minors may be introduced as a slew of other Republican-led states are considering similar legislation. Doctors told lawmakers Thursday the interventions are important for transgender youth to reduce depression and suicides and improve other outcomes. Wolf Carbon will not seek eminent domain. Wolf Carbon Solutions will not seek eminent domain authority to build a carbon dioxide pipeline across eastern Iowa, according to a permit application the company filed Thursday. The company would be the only one of three proposed pipelines not to seek authority to take land for the project. Landowners rally against pipelines. As dozens of landowners and activists from around the state lobbied lawmakers Tuesday to pass bills banning the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines, lawmakers advanced a bill that would severely limit the projects. The three companies planning to build pipelines in Iowa to shuttle CO2 from ethanol plants to reservoirs underground say the technology is vital to the continued survival of the ethanol industry. A bill advancing in the House would require the companies to obtain 90% of a pipeline's route through voluntary easement before being granted eminent domain and block the projects for a year or more until a federal regulator announces new rules for CO2 pipelines. Election recount changes. Election recount procedures would be standardized under a bill being considered by state lawmakers. The bill makes several changes on the timing and conduct of recounts, and election officials across Iowa generally were supportive of the measure. COVID reporting changes. 
Iowa will end its webpage for COVID-19 data and publish weekly data as part of its respiratory virus reports starting in April. The state health department will end its requirement that clinical labs report positive tests. Under the heading, they said, he broke the things that needed to be broken and he worked to fix them. The reason I'm running is we got to move forward. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley on why she's running against Donald Trump. And no one rushed through this process. Minors are not provided care without parental support. The evidence shows it not only helps, but can be life-saving. UI Healthcare Dr. Katie Imberek on gender-affirming care for minors. Under the heading Odds and Ends, 2024 Watch, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley told Iowa Republicans they need to move forward from former President Donald Trump as she seeks support for her presidential bid ahead of the 2024 Republican caucuses. South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott, who often is in Iowa but has not announced a bid for the White House, also appeared in the state this past week alongside Governor Kim Reynolds. Public Universities Impact The State Board of Regents released a report showing Iowa's public universities collectively added close to $15 billion to the state's economy in the 2022 budget year. The impact includes operations spending, construction, employees, and research. Under the heading Water Cooler, Unemployment Changes. Iowans collecting unemployment benefits would be required to complete more job searches to maintain those benefits under a bill lawmakers advanced this past week. Unemployed workers now are required to complete four job searches a week, but the bill would require them to do up to six, depending on the availability of jobs in the state. And COVID cases fall. Iowa's COVID-19 cases fell in the week ending Wednesday, but hospitalizations rose. The state reported 1,581 cases compared to 1,626 the previous week. There were 159 people hospitalized with the virus compared to 135 the previous week. Turning to the Insight page and Althea Cole's column to A Candid World, Will Rage Politics Be All the Rage in 2024? Around this time eight years ago, the state of Iowa began crawling with what a few of us called presidential wannabes. It was the year leading up to the 2016 Iowa caucuses, when both parties would need to nominate a new candidate for president. Of what one would consider high-profile candidates, there were 17 Republicans and three Democrats. I was an active political volunteer and decided that I would try to see every candidate possible. I attended rallies and meet and greets for at least 15 of them, including Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump. That was back when he could fit a rally inside the Electric Park Ballroom in Waterloo. So I shouldn't have been surprised when multiple people asked me how the Mike Pence event went. The former vice president came to Cedar Rapids Pizza Ranch a week and a half ago to speak about parental rights and the LGBTQ culture war as part of an initiative of his group, Advancing American Freedom. Sure enough, I attended, and each time I was asked how it went, I shrugged without much to say. It was everything I expected it to be and nothing I didn't. Actually, that's not entirely true. One thing I did not expect was the attendance of recently declared presidential candidate Perry Johnson. You may never have heard of Johnson, a businessman from Michigan, but you've likely seen his work if you watch the recent Super Bowl. He was behind the ad that featured images of elected officials such as President Joe Biden, Senator Chuck Schumer, and U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, caricatured as fat and bloated, just like the United States government. I've never seen a declared presidential candidate show up to another likely candidate's event to boast their support for the other candidate, or even just the values the other candidate was there to champion. At any rate, I'm just glad my face wasn't in the cringy video Johnson's campaign made of his appearance. That little oddity aside, everything else about the event was pretty typical, to the point where I found myself thinking less about what Pence's appearance meant for future campaigns and more of past campaigns and other political events that it reminded me of. I've attended so many over the years. Florida Governor Jeb Bush packed the room at that same pizza ranch in March 2015 for the first big candidate visit in Cedar Rapids of the 2016 cycle. In the same room Jeb appeared, Barbara Grassley conversed with a group of us in August 2016 on behalf of her husband, the senator, when she quipped that she'd told her children the previous year that she'd write them all out of her will if any of them voted for Ted Cruz at the 2016 caucuses. He gives Chuck such fits on the Judiciary Committee, she exclaimed while we all laughed. Most rah-rah speeches, another term I picked up from other political junkies, junkies over the years, have the same format. They're held in a venue big enough to fit the anticipated crowd, but small enough to give the room that packed look. Attendees arrive early to sit or stand as close as possible. A local political figure gives an introductory speech to get the crowd energized and brings out the candidate to cheers and applause. The candidate gives an enthusiastic speech, 
fires up the crowd, then shakes as many hands, and poses for as many pictures as possible. Sometimes they speak with the press before their staff whisk them away to keep them on their schedule. All this happened during Pence's appearance on February 15th. The higher profile the candidate or elected official, the more likely people vehemently opposed to their candidacy or elected status will assemble near the site of the visit to protest the appearance. Some of the opposition also will attend the event itself. After all, they too are constituents and or voters. At the Pence event, I stood next to two women who showed up clearly expecting that they would not like what he had to say about K-12 transgender policies and the Linmar parents' lawsuit. While everyone else clapped and cheered, the two women next to me booed as loudly as they could, balking and scoffing at every sentence he spoke. I've seen that before. Whether most people like it or not, the presence of loud, angry opposition isn't really an abnormal occurrence at campaign events and town halls anymore. I call it rage politics because for many, involvement in civic activism now centers on the expression of political rage. Americans are good at rage politics, the rage over their candidates losing the election. They rage over the other side winning the election. They rage over legislative agendas and school board policies and Supreme Court decisions. To them, the other side isn't simply misguided, it's evil. I first witnessed it in early 2017 after Donald Trump took office. I had driven to attend a town hall meeting with Senator Joni Ernst at Coe College that ended up being swarmed with angry leftists to the point that the auditorium reached capacity and I was blocked along with a number of other people from entering the building. While a few of us waited outside, hoping to be let in as others left, we could hear the shouting of the crowd from inside. Having taken note of that in other raucous town hall meetings happening all over the country, then-Representative Rod Bloomstaff opted to limit attendance at the four town halls he held in May 2017 to residents of his congressional district and require registration and ID for entry. It was a strict move I normally would question, but as one of the volunteers I asked asked to check the huge list of names and IDs for the Cedar Rapids meeting, I quickly realized that the size and the hostility of the crowd made it necessary. About 20 minutes into the town hall, I entered the gym where it was being held and stood at the top of the bleachers and back. As a congressman answered a question about the funding of Planned Parenthood, a woman next to me yelled every obscene term I'd ever heard to describe female genitalia, and a few that I hadn't. Only a few of us nearby actually heard her. For everyone else, her hollering was drowned out by the rest of the crowd. Having witnessed all that and more as American political rage rages on, I'm glad that the event with Pence was relatively tame, with only the two ladies at the back of the room making a small stink. But I can't help but wonder how our collective rage will carry into the 2024 election cycle with so much more to be angry about that we weren't before. We're angry about COVID-19, some of us for what we see as so many preventable deaths, others for what we see as the devastating effects had on our society from business shutdowns and school closures. We're angry about school funding. We're angry about the culture war spreading in our K-12 schools. As we seek political solutions to our culture problems, will our politics be politics as usual, or will rage be all the rage in 2024? And Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman column, Reorganization brings more pleasure and pain. There's a lot of pleasure to be found in the nearly 1,600-page state government reorganization bill, and most of it is the governor's. Numerous state officials currently serve a term set by Iowa law and can't be removed without evidence of malfeasance or an inability to do the job, with hopes of insulating their position from political pressures. But under Governor Governor Kim Reynolds' reorganization plan, several of those officials will serve at the pleasure of the governor. That means Reynolds can fire them for any reason, including political considerations. Most of these officials still must be confirmed by the Senate, but the Senate version of the bill also lowers the threshold for Senate confirmation to 30 votes from the current 34 votes. That's cutting three-fourths down to three-fifths for those of you who are fraction fans. More pleasure for the governor, less independence and legislative input for state government. Team Reynolds will tell you this makes these officials more accountable to elected officials. That's true, but they're mostly more accountable to just one elected official. One of the main thrusts of the massive government reorganization bill is to concentrate more power in the governor's office, as if more is needed. For example, there's the state's workers' compensation commissioner. The commissioner oversees the handling of workers' compensation disputes between injured employees and employers. It seems like a position Iowans would want shielded from political influence. That's why, under current law, the commissioner serves a six-year term unless some malfeasance is detected. You might recall it was former Governor Terry Branstad who tried to shove former workers' compensation commissioner Chris Godfrey out the door in 2010 to please the governor's business pals. Godfrey was in the middle of his term and refused to quit. Branstad slashed his salary. 
Godfrey, who is gay, sued Branstad and others, leading to a protracted legal battle that cost the state millions of dollars to hire private lawyers to defend the former governor. Godfrey won a $1.5 million verdict in district court, but the conservative Iowa Supreme Court reversed it. Under the reorganization bill, the Workers' Compensation Commissioner will serve at the pleasure of the governor, so there's nothing to stop the shoving. So will the state labor commissioner, who also currently serves a six-year term. The bill also creates a new executive director of the Public Employee Relations Board, which governs relations between government and public employees. The executive director will serve the pleasure of the governor. The CEO of the Iowa Lottery Authority, which serves a four-year term subject to the malfeasance clause, will be renamed the lottery administrator who will, you guessed it, serve at the pleasure of the governor. The lottery will no longer be an entrepreneurial enterprise authority and will be folded into the Department of Revenue. The superintendent of banks and the superintendent of credit unions will lose their set terms and serve at the pleasure of the governor. And, as I wrote previously, the state consumer advocate, who is supposed to stand up for consumers in cases before the Iowa Utilities Board, will lose a mandated four-year term and instead serve at the pleasure of Republican Attorney General Brenna Byrd. The governor-appointed director of the Department of Administrative Services will now select the state librarian. Under current law, the State Commission of Libraries makes that pick. Experts in their field? Who needs experts? Under the bill, the consumer advocate would no longer be a competent attorney, eliminating the advocate's ability to represent consumers in court. Lawyers in the OCA would instead be hired by the attorney general. The State Board of Health, an 11-member board with seven members specializing in healthcare fields, is eliminated. It's replaced by the Council on Health Human Services, a nine-member board with just one member specializing in health. You might recall in the fall of 2020, at the peak of the pandemic, the Board of Health voted to urge the governor to mandate mask use. Local control also takes hits. Community corrections boards in each judicial district would become merely advisory bodies, with all policy-making power grabbed by the Department of Corrections, run by a Reynolds appointee. The bill also emphasizes that the attorney general can parachute in to prosecute any local criminal case, even if the local county attorney doesn't ask for help. So maybe you're cheering on the governor for her streamlining efforts. Think of the budget savings. The management consulting firm Guidehouse, which helped craft the plan, predicts reorganization will save $215 million over four years. But considering the state's general fund budget is $8.5 billion in fiscal 2024, the plan will hardly give government a buzz cut. And all of this serving at the pleasure stuff would be easier to accept if the Republican-controlled legislature hadn't abandoned all executive branch oversight as we know it. Lawmakers let the governor basically rule the state solo during the height of the pandemic and never asked any questions about how that went. Pandemic aid was misspent, and the legislature remained silent. The House Government Oversight Committee, which would be a dandy place for lawmakers and the public to hear a detailed explanation of what reorganization will mean, is too busy inviting in Moms for Liberty to lament how hard it is to ban books in schools and grilling school officials over obscene books. It's tough to investigate real government failures when you're staging an inquisition. Without oversight, serving at the pleasure of the governor will result in a remarkable growth in executive power. There really should be a bipartisan legislative unease with this, but this generation of Republicans is more interested in grabbing the power needed to steamroll lousy legislation to passage than in the health of our governing institutions. If it doesn't serve the GOP agenda, blow it up. If you're hoping to weigh in on all of this, time's a-wasting. This spruce goose of a bill is already airborne, having cleared the Senate State Government Committee this past week. It's now eligible for a full Senate debate, and GOP leadership is not known for thoughtful, patient reflection. Maybe we can wave as it flies by. But as always, it's been my pleasure to share with you the latest developments under the Golden Dome of Wisdom. Okay. Turning to the community letters and today's editorial cartoon, the cartoon today is from Jack Oman, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. There's a caricature of a white man with a button that says DeSantis. DeSantis has a thought bubble that says we're not woke as he points to an elephant with snoring Z's over its head. The elephant is in bed cuddled up with a black crow with Jim written on it and the alarm clock next to the bed reads civil rights and the display reads 1950. The first community letter today is from Paula Hernandez of Cedar Rapids. Hair hygiene is out of style in restaurants. Last weekend, I went to a local restaurant to have breakfast. Looking into the dining area, I saw a server with waist-length hair just hanging there without being tied up. This could have easily been hanging over food she was or would be serving. I'm sure most people are like me if they have hair in their food and have to fight the urge to vomit. 
I asked the bartender about it and she actually said, oh, that's never been a rule here. What? Why would such thing be a rule? Common sense enters in here along with it hopefully being a health code violation. The bartender asked the server to put her hair up. The bartender also had long hair, not tied up, while bending over the ice more than once. What the heck is wrong with people? As a longtime server who also had long hair, I always made sure mine was up and out of the way. I'm a little surprised more people don't notice this. Paula Hernandez of Cedar Rapids. The next letter is from Brenda Barr of Garner. Life or death of ethanol tied to pipelines? Recently, an Iowa Renewable Fuels Executive indicated that without carbon capture and sequestration by CO2 pipelines, ethanol plants will not survive. I think that is sensationalism meant to scare people into signing easements. If the plants had the largest share possible of the 45Q tax, they could start any one of 10 new businesses. These plants would have permanent sustainable jobs, not temporary ones, and would pay taxes year after year, adding to the tax base. Not a depreciating tax for seven years and be gone like the pipeline company's tax will be. China is already using the CO2 commodity to make airplane fuel. We need sustainable jobs here for the national security made in America push coming out of COVID. This would increase our national security and resource resiliency. Washington, D.C. politicians should look at all options for CO2, not just pipelines burying a useful commodity in the ground to be used for ERO that will increase greenhouse gases. Every one barrel of CO2 in the ground makes 1.5 barrels when taken out in oil, producing greenhouse gas, and that's not an even, that's not even an equal exchange. The real life and death situation will be for farmers, animals, and plants that are near a potentially explosive, hazardous, toxic pipeline every day. Everyone needs to think outside the pipeline box. The land destruction needs to be stopped. Brenda Barr of Garner. Next, Gary Hughes of Marion writes, Police Chief Misleads About Speed Cameras. Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German continues to gaslight citizens and the state legislature with misleading, if not deceptive, claims about traffic camera impact on safety. He has never addressed the city's fundamental problem in that citations from violations have trended with increase when any effectiveness is only possible from reduction, as prior Chief Graham advocated when installed. Worse, he preys on emotion by attempting to relate one accident in particular to implied traffic camera safety, specifically when a speeding sedan crashed into a police sport utility vehicle with resident fatalities and officer injuries. What he doesn't say, though, is that the media reported at time of occurrence that the accident wasn't caused by speed, but rather a drug-impaired driver. Traffic cameras can only condition driver behavior for improved safety if they result in citation reduction, and they certainly cannot condition accident reduction fueled by drugs or alcohol. When will the chief explain how safety is involved when traffic camera citations increase rather than decrease? Gary Hughes of Marion. And the final letter is from Matthew Rothschild of Marion. Hands-free bill isn't about safety. The Iowa legislature is currently considering a proposal to govern cell phone use while driving, following other states with hands-free laws. The proposal should be rejected. Consider the following. Two drivers took to the road today. The first had a conversation on his phone as he drove. He kept his eyes on the road, his hand upon the wheel, and stayed in his lane as he drove. His trip passed without incident. The second driver just picked up a burger from his favorite fast food joint. As he turns out of the drive-thru, he proceeds to unwrap the burger, steering the wheel with his knees. Eating the burger is a chore because he must take care not to dribble ketchup or drop crumbs on himself. As these concerns occupy his attention, he is weaving all over the road. Which driver of the two is the most unsafe? Which driver of the two will suffer criminal sanction under this proposal? It's clear that this proposal has nothing to do with safety. Matthew Rothschild of Marion. And some quotes of the week. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says, think about that for a second. How well do you think it would go over if I called President Trump and said, do you want to be my VP? Next, Iowa House Democratic leader Jennifer Kahn says, it is across party lines. It is across the place where you live in the state, rural, urban, and suburban. It is time to do this. That is on introducing legislation that would legalize marijuana for recreational use in Iowa. Next, State Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison who chairs the Judiciary Committee, expressing his opposition to the Democrats' marijuana bill, says, I have been clear in the past that I do not believe marijuana legalization is the right path forward for Iowa. Next, State Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, speaking against a bill that would emphasize Attorney General Brenna Byrd's right to step in to handle local cases if help is not requested by a county attorney. Senator Bolton says, this is not about doing justice. This is about doing politics through criminal justice. 
That is something that is going to disrupt a critical working relationship between the county attorneys and the attorney general's office. And State Senator Michael Busolo, a Republican from Ankeny who supports the bill, says, I have faith in A.G. Byrd to use this responsibly. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 26, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Feldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. Robert Carroll, age 73, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, February 24th. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center handling arrangements. Judith A. Arman, age 88, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 17th. Family and friends will gather from 1 to 3 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th, at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Cedar Rapids. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter and Memorial and Funeral Services. Judy worked in healthcare, retiring after 26 years with Lynn County Anesthesiologists, where she was a scheduler. She was known to many as Grandma Judy because of her giving and nurturing nature. Gail Beard. We are sad to announce the sudden passing of Gail Beard, born Gail Chase, on February 21st, 2023. Gail was born October 14th, 1953. Gail was known for her superior Texas Hold'em skills, her amazing way of coming up with Scrabble words, I still think she cheated a few times, and her luck with playing the slots. She also had a love for travel. Some of her favorite places were Italy, Mexico, France, and Egypt. There will be a celebration of life, from 1 to 6 p.m. Sunday, May 7th, at Cedar Rapids 2272 Fraternal Order of Eagles, located at 1735 11th Street Northwest in Cedar Rapids. Colleen K. Brewer, age 84, of Cedar Rapids, died Tuesday, February 21st, at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, at Cedar Hills Community Church. Friends may visit with the family after 9 a.m. Saturday at the church, Burial will be in Oakshade Cemetery in Marion. Tea and Funeral Home is caring for Colleen and her family. Cortez Bernard West Sr., age 54, of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Kansas City, Missouri, passed away on Friday, on Saturday, February 18th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 3rd, at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest. Homegoing services will be 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, at New Life Outreach Worship Center, located at 3300 42nd Street Northeast. Burial will be in Czech National Cemetery. Cortez loved to go fishing, camping, play darts, throw barbecues in the summer, and hang out in his man cave. Everybody that knew him knew him as a diehard Kansas City Chiefs fan. His biggest joys were hanging out with his kids and his grandsons. Ruth Christine Pape, age 98, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on February 22nd at St. Luke's Hospice in Cedar Rapids. She was the oldest of seven children and a trailblazer in her life. In 1947, she worked for the phone company and later she was a waitress at the Roosevelt Hotel. In 1959, she worked with Square D. She worked there for 17 years and then became a licensed real estate agent. And she and Richard began acquiring and renovating properties in Cedar Rapids. Ruth loved dancing, playing cards, traveling, gardening, and spending time with family and friends. She was a person of great Christian faith, values, and works. Her visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. February 27th at Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel. Mass will be held at 10 a.m. February 28th at St. Jude Catholic Church. Interment at St. John's Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Eileen Marie Otto, age 76, of Maynard, Iowa, caught the westbound train on Thursday, February 23rd at Allen Hospital. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Throughout her career, Eileen worked many jobs at Rockwell Collins, Norand, and Iowa Ham. Eileen was famous for her pea salad. She enjoyed knitting, crochet, playing cards, camping, and spending time with her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. John Harold Kehoe, age 62, of Princeton, died at his home on Wednesday, February 22nd, of heart-related issues. The rite of cremation was accorded, and inurement will be at a later date. Memorial services to celebrate his life will begin with visitation from 3 to 4 p.m. Monday, February 27th, at the Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Devonport, and will conclude with a time of sharing starting at 4 p.m. John attended Regina High School and then worked in the construction industry for many years in eastern Iowa. 
John was a lifelong builder and was always knees-deep in various projects. In his spare time, he enjoyed swimming, fishing, going to the Blues Fest, and spending time with his family. Arlene Hora Dayhoff, age 94, of Cedar Rapids, died February 21st. A private graveside service will be held at a later date at Memory Gardens in Iowa City. She served on St. Luke's Hospital and Foundation Boards and received state and national recognition for her work in the health and human services field. She was a member of Chapter 2 PEO and St. Paul's Methodist Church. Mary Elaine Casey Olson, age 78, of Coggin, passed away on Friday, February 24th, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 27th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with a rosary service at 3 p.m. prior. Funeral Mass will begin at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 28th, at St. Patrick's Church in Ryan, Iowa, with additional visitation one hour before. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery in Coggin. Wendy Louise Bell of Newport Beach, California, died on February 3, 2023, of a stroke. She was 69 years old. She attended George Washington Senior High School in Cedar Rapids. She later received a Master of Business Administration from San Jose State University. While living in Newport Beach, California, she was a member of the Balboa Yacht Club, she became a competitive sailboat racer. After retiring in 1991, Wendy volunteered for multiple charities, including Fibrodysplasia Ossificans Progressiva, which struck her nephew Christopher at a young age. Wendy was also instrumental in raising money for the Performance Handicapped Racing Fleet of Southern California and the University of Colorado School of Business. Richard Smichael, known as Rich, age 70, of Cedar Rapids, went to heaven on Tuesday, February 21st, after a long battle with various health issues. He was a quiet soul with a sweet smile who loved to work on electronics and try to fix them. There will be no formal service. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Roger D. Gaddis, age 86, of Plano, Texas, passed away Thursday, February 16th, in Plano. He was born in East Amana, Iowa and grew up bilingual, speaking both German and English because his father's family only spoke English and his mother's family spoke German and English. After high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army in January 1955 and served honorably until 1957. Roger always had a love for classical music and choral music. He shared his beautiful baritone voice with his family and in multiple choral groups. In the Kansas City area, who's a member of the choir at St. Mark's United Methodist Church in Overland Park, Kansas. A memorial celebration will be from 2 to 4 p.m. April 1st in the Woodshed Room at the Oxyoke Inn in Amana. John Bales, age 80, of Loudon, passed away from a courageous battle with cancer in his home. Graveside services will be held at a later date in Stanwood Cemetery, Stanwood. A celebration of life gathering will be held later this spring. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center is caring for John and his family. John enjoyed fishing, telling jokes, watching NASCAR, and most of all spending time with his family. He performed in the Joy Chitwood Thrill Show. He worked at Cherry Burrill for over 30 years and later retired from the Cedar Rapids Truck Country. Matthew M. Marks, known as Matt, age 69, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Wednesday, February 22nd, at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 11 a.m. Friday, March 3rd, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, with the visitation to begin one hour prior. Burial will be at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids at a later date. Matt served his country honorably in the U.S. Navy as a construction build striker. After serving in the Navy, Matt returned to his hometown of Cedar Rapids. He started his career as a millwright with Square D in 1971, where he remained for 45 years. He was a member of the Machinist Local 831. Matt enjoyed his time at Bushwood, where he would connect with his retired friends to share stories over breakfast. In Matt's free time, he enjoyed the outdoors, music, drinking craft beer, joining his family for racing, and holding great conversations. He could also be counted on to fix anything and to lend a helping hand to anyone in need. Diana Lynette Sills of Mission, Texas, passed away peacefully, surrounded by family on February 21, 2023, after a short illness. 
Diana was born January 11, 1948 in Cedar Rapids. A celebration of life will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. Sunday, March 12th, at Tommy's Restaurant, 393 Edgewood Road Northwest in Cedar Rapids. And Kenneth Roger Callos, known as Ken, age 80 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. And Patricia Callos, known as Patty and born Patricia Vamaka, age 71 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Sunday, January 1st, 2023. A joint celebration of life for Ken and Patty will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 4th, at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids. Turning to the sports page, I don't even barely follow Hawkeye basketball, and I know this was a big deal. Iowa's men's basketball all-timer at Carver. Down 95-84 to 84 with a minute left, Iowa makes five three-pointers to force overtime and then prevails. By Mark Loss of the Gazette in Iowa City. Tony Perkins flung the basketball skyward in joy at the end of Saturday's game in Carver-Hawkeye Arena, perhaps offering it as a thank-you gift to the basketball gods. The Iowa junior guard was no different from thousands of people who attended the team's 121-106 overtime victory over Michigan State. Not long before the Hawkeyes prevailed, he thought they were beaten. Some of those fans heard about Iowa's unreal comeback after they had left the arena. Others watched it from the concourse instead of making the grievous mistake of leaving too soon. Still others went back to their seats in the break between the end of the second half and the start of overtime. Michigan State made two free throws for a 95-84 lead with 106 left in the second half. Dave Revsign of the Big Ten Network said the NCAA told him it was the fourth time a team had ever rallied from 11 points down in the final minute to win and the first in the last six years. I'm not going to lie, Perkins said. I thought the game was over. Probably everybody did. The Hawkeyes didn't act like it, though, and certainly didn't shoot like it. This may read like fiction, but here goes. Iowa made three-pointers with 39, 32, 21, 10, and 3.3 seconds left in the second half. Connor McCaffrey made the first and fourth, Chris Murray the second, and Patrick McCaffrey the third. The fifth was by sophomore forward Peyton Sanford. He didn't say he knew it was going in when he shot it. He said he knew it when MSU's A.J. Hoggard missed the second of two free throws with 10 seconds left and the Spartans ahead 101-98. It was Hoggard's first miss of a foul shot after 11 straight makes. How did the Hawkeyes get so many shots? They got one turnover, then quickly fouled Hoggard three times after baskets. He made the first five free throws in that stretch, but missed the sixth. The Hawkeyes then hustled the ball up the floor, and before the Spartans had a chance to foul anyone to prevent a three-point try, Sanford took a handoff from Connor McCaffrey and fired from the left-center area of the front court. He swished it. Hoggard's last second half-court heave hit the back of the rim and bounced away, and we had overtime. Iowa never trailed in the OT after being behind from the 1751 mark of the second half until Sanford's stunner. The Hawkeyes didn't try a three-pointer in the overtime and had no need for one. Perkins rebounded Chris Murray misses for baskets to give Iowa leads of 108 to 103 and 110 to 105, the latter with 26 seconds left. That did the trick. So the Hawkeyes improved to 10 and 8 in the Big 10 and 18-11 overall. The Spartans are 9 and 8 and 17-11. Michigan State was great for 38 minutes. Guard Tyson Walker had what his coach, Tom Izzo, called one of the great performances in Big Ten history today, if you ask me, as far as this year goes. He made shots off the dribble. He made shots off the drive. He made shots from the three. Tyson Walker was unbelievable. Walker scored 32 points and made 11 of 15 shots for a team that shot 59.3% from the floor and had 11 more free throw attempts than Iowa, yet lost. So how did the Hawkeyes do this? Well, 15 offensive rebounds, 10 steals, and just 9 turnovers sure helped. Murray had 26 points, Sanford made a career-high six three-pointers and scored 22 points, Perkins had 24 points, nine rebounds, and six assists. But this win was about a lot more than statistics. I've been in a lot of games, and I've coached in this situation before, said Iowa's Fran McCaffrey. You get a sense of, are they still fighting, or is it just me trying to convince them to keep fighting? I didn't have to convince them. And our neighbors in Ames, Iowa State men, stunned silence at Hilton. Cyclones collapse at home, lose to last place Oklahoma by Rob Gray, correspondent in Ames. Trombones and tambourines. As the final seconds wound down in number 23, Iowa State's stunning 61-50 Big 12 loss to last place Oklahoma on Saturday at Hilton Coliseum, only the band produced loud sounds. 
The usually boisterous fans simply tap their toes toward the exits, shuffling off in stunned silence after the reeling Cyclones, 17-11 and 11 and 8-8 eight and eight in the Big 12, lost for the fifth time in the past six games before a sellout crowd of 14,267. We're going to learn a lot about who we are as a group and who we are as people right now and what our pride factor is based on what happened out there today, ISU head coach TJ Otzelberger said. We've got to dig deep. We've got to find a way, and that's what we're going to do. Cheers echoed throughout Hilden early as the Cyclones surged to a 14-3 lead on center Robert Jones' putback dunk with 12.53 left in the first half. The Sooners, 14-15 and 4-12, and and had more turnovers, six than field goal attempts, five at that point, but they managed to remain within striking distance and strailed by just five at 28-23 entering halftime. Iowa State did what they do, Oklahoma head coach Porter Moser said. They came out and punched us in the face. Not literally, but with their effort. I really liked our fight to get back in with five at the half. So that's the first thing we could build on, our fight back. We've seen it in this building. We've seen it with this team. How hard they play. They get you right out of the gate, and sometimes it's hard to adjust. It's the time of the year, especially for some of our older guys, like we just need to step up and make plays, said Otzelberger, whose team was out-rebounded by double digits, 39-27, for the first time in conference play. We need to finish plays at the rim. We need to take great shots, and we can't let our offensive disappointment affect how we defend. The Cyclones have done that before, so they can do it again. But time is running short if they're to make positive noise entering the Big 12 tournament and beyond. We don't ever want to play like that, especially at home in front of our fans, Otzelberger said. We want to have a lot more pride. And the History Happenings column, written by Jessica Klein, a leadership and character scholar at Wake Forest University, and her dad, Rob Klein, who is not a scholar of any kind, they write this monthly column for the History Center. Learn some history, have a bite. History Center programs convene at restaurants with history on the side. The History Center's Bite of History program is one of the organization's most popular. Each Bite of History event takes place in a locally owned Lynn County restaurant and features a presentation about the history of the area where the restaurant is situated. Attendees can enjoy some wonderful food while learning more about their community. While we can't replicate the dining experience, we can give you a taste of the fascinating history shared by History Center Program Manager Jenny Thielman. Take, for example, the Bite of History event held at Moco Game Room and Hot Dog Bar, 1602 E Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Moco is between Coe College and Mount Mercy University, and each institution gets its due in the Bite of History program. Coe, which turns out to be the shortest name of any American institution of higher education, was founded by the Reverend Williston Jones in 1851 as the School for the Prophets. The nascent institution received a donation of $1,500, almost $60,000 in today's dollars, from a Catskill farmer named Daniel Coe who gave the money on the condition that the school would provide education to both men and women. The money arrived sewn into the petticoat of a woman who traveled to Iowa by stagecoach. The college bore two more names, Cedar Rapids Collegiate Institute in 1853 and Parsons Cemetery in 1868, before being renamed for Coe in 1875, and the school's name changed from Coe Collegiate Institute to Coe College in 1881. When the Sisters of Mercy bought Mound Farm in the Green Mansion in 1907, the goal was to open a girls' boarding school. That school, Sacred Heart Academy, lasted until 1924. At that time, it became Mount Mercy Academy. Four years later, it became Mount Mercy Junior College, a two-year institution for women. Mount Mercy became a four-year college in 1960 and opened to men in 1969. In 2010, it became Mount Mercy University. The MOCO presentation also included information about sites in the neighborhood that connections, had connections to artist Grant Wood. For example, Wood's childhood home is located at 318 14th Street Northeast. Wood's mother Hattie bought the home for $2,580 after her husband died. Grant had been born near Anamosa in 1891 and the move to Cedar Rapids came when he was 10 years old. He attended Polk School, winning third place in a national art contest, and Washington High School, graduating in 1910. Also in the neighborhood was the practice of Dr. Byron McKeeby, the dentist who would later serve as the model for the man depicted in Wood's famed American Gothic painting. McKeeby's practice was on the upper floor of a commercial building at 1508 First Avenue Northeast. For a time, his practice was downtown, but he returned to this earlier location shortly before retiring in the mid-1940s. At the time, he lived next door at 1512 First Avenue Northeast. Wood, along with his friend and fellow artist Marvin Cohn, 
is memorialized in Daniels Park at 940 Oakland Road Northeast, just a couple blocks from MoCo. The park was planned by Harlan Bartholomew & Associates, a landscape architecture firm from St. Louis. The original plan included two picnic areas, a playground and a rose garden, as well as tennis courts, softball fields, badminton courts, and spots for pitching horseshoes. A wading pool, since replaced by a splash pad, was added in the 1950s. The memorial to Wood was dedicated in the park in 1993. The Cone Memorial was dedicated two years later. Keep your eye on the History Center website, historycenter.org, or social media to find out when the next Bite of History event will be. And finally, in a piece of history by Tara Templeton, seven died in Clifton Hotel fire in 1903. Seven people died and 40 were injured in the February 20, 1903 fire that destroyed the Clifton Hotel at the corner of 1st Avenue and 4th Street in southeast Cedar Rapids. Thomas Bibby and his date saw the flames around 1.30 a.m. and alerted the bellhop, Clyde Washington and Porter Noah Watkins. They sounded the alarm, but the fire spread quickly. Guests who chose to get dressed or gather their belongings found the hotel's stairways blocked by smoke and heat. Others ran out of the hotel in their nightclothes into the cold February night. Some guests on the upper floors were able to escape by climbing onto the roof of the Cedar Rapids Plumbing Company and then onto the National Hotel. Six guests jumped 29.5 feet from a third-story window to escape. Those who tried to use fire escapes found they did not have extension ladders to reach the ground, so guests had to jump or wait for firefighters to raise ladders to them. One of the hotel's fire escapes had been removed for renovations in 1901 and never replaced. Authorities determined the fire had started in the hotel basement near the electrical wiring. A short likely ignited a nearby trash pile. As a result of the Clifton and other fires, Cedar Rapids began requiring fire escapes on all buildings over three stories in 1903. Among the seven people who died in the fire were S. Jackson, E.J. Young, L.C. Burnett, W.A. Mowry, G.E. Holmes, and Dr. S.G. Grove. Less than a year after the fire, construction began on the Allison Hotel at the site. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 26th, 2023. I have selected and lightly edited the articles. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my messy kitchen table. Today, my plans include cleaning up some mold that we found in my basement, but I'd rather just watch the sun shine outside and watch the snow melt. As always, we welcome your comments, and thank you for listening.